New Testament. We're beginning a new study, concurrent with the start of the fall semester of the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter. We hope to study the first half of the book in the fall semester and, Lord willing, the second half of the book in the spring semester. So we're at Ephesians chapter 1. Tonight we'll be looking at just verses 1 and 2. Before we read that passage and consider together, we might ask the question, what is this letter itself about? Very simply, it's about a secret. The unveiling of God's secret. What is that? Well, if you were to scan your eyes down to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul tells you it's God making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's, it's He says... The unveiling of God's secret, so it's no longer a secret, and it's God's plan for the fullness of time. The the best secret I ever kept until I told it was April 14th, 1994. I was uh, spending the day with a girl I was dating, Melinda, my wife now, culminating in a lovely meal on a romantic patio. And we were, she thought, simply celebrating my birthday. We were actually eating our, Lord willing, should she say yes, and she did, celebrating our engagement that night. Now the interesting thing about the unveiling of that secret is that with the passage of time, month after month, new blessings have been revealed to us. On account of the unveiling of that first secret. That's what Paul is saying here in the book of Ephesians. There are blessings that come from finding out what God is doing in the world. What his plan and purpose for the universe is. And what's so exciting about that is that we are caught up in that plan and purpose. Ephesians is about how we as individuals and as a Community, the church, are caught up into what he calls the unsearchable riches of Christ and the blessings that flow from Jesus. And so we're going to think about the book of Ephesians. And let me invite you to consider chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Very simply, his introduction to the letter in which he tells you a little bit about himself, a little bit about those he's writing to, and summarizes his main message. Hear now the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, your word is a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. 
It makes wise the simple and gives joy to the heart and revives the soul. We ask that it would do those things for us. And that you would lift Jesus before our eyes, that we would see him clearly, know him, enjoy him, be able to honor him. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight as we ponder just this very brief introduction to his letter, I want you to think about three things tonight. I want you to think about the Apostle Paul telling you that we have a sure word about God. And we have a new identity in Christ. And we have, and we can, he says, grow in our experience of God's blessings. Those three things. In the first place, we have a sure word from God about God. And it's a necessary word, he says. We've got to have one. I mean, just take a a random for instance. Consider the plight of a parent. Child one is out in the neighborhood somewhere. Parent says, child two, go tell child one it's time to come home. Child one leaves the home. Uh, Child two leaves the house, goes goes and finds child one. Tells him it's time to come home. Come home. Child two comes home. We wait around a little while, and there's no sight of child number one. They haven't shown up. Where are they, you say to the child who returned? I don't know, they say. Hmm. Now, before the parent's head explodes with frustration, it's best to ask this question What did you tell the child? Well, I told him it's time to come home. Okay, well, did you say, Dad says it's time to come home? Well, no, not really. Well, okay, well, go back, tell the child, Dad says it's time to come home. Child two is sent out, relays the message, child one comes home, at least in an ideal world. What is the lesson there, friends? What's the lesson? Child one doesn't want to listen to child two. Child one doesn't care what child two thinks. Ah, but when child two comes with a message from dad and says it's the will of dad and delivers dad's message, then, well, then usually, at least, child one pays attention. You understand where I'm going with this? It's absolutely vital that we have a sure word about God from God about Jesus from Jesus and not just some man's word, not just some private opinion, not just the the best thoughts of a religious, you know, theologian, but actually the words of Jesus himself. And that is what we have. It's absolutely vital. And that's what Paul is saying he's giving when he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so it's a necessary word. We need it. And it's a certain word because of his credentials. He's an apostle. An apostle is one, it's a a word that means a sent one. He's been sent from Jesus and by Jesus to others to tell the message. This is not Paul's best thoughts or most interesting ideas. It's actually the word of Jesus. Paul didn't send himself here, right? He sent, it says, By the will of God. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know he didn't send himself because Paul hated Jesus. We haven't arrived there yet in the book of Acts. Um, All the persecutions of Paul, just some of them, but 
Uh, well, we actually, I think we did actually read his conversion. He hated Jesus. He persecuted the church, not unlike King Herod. He sought to destroy Christians following Jesus. And on the way to the Damascus, intending to imprison Christians, Jesus appeared to him, confronted him, humbled him, converted him, and appointed him to preach. And so he's, he's saying that. He's saying, I'm the messenger of God by God's choosing, by the will of God. And so that is a reminder to us, just very quickly, as a bit of an aside, but it's a reminder to us that, that we can't pit Paul against Jesus, or Jesus against Paul. We can't say, you know, I love what Jesus has to say, but I don't really like some of the stuff that the Apostle Paul has to say. We can't do that. Because Paul is simply passing along to you what Jesus wants passed along, what Jesus taught him and told him to say. And so he doesn't, friends, he doesn't contradict Jesus. So it's, it's a necessary word. It's a certain word. We can trust it. But it's a very direct word to each and every one of us here. It's interesting that Paul, when he writes, he doesn't say to the elders among you, to the pastors and teachers, here's what the people need to know. You go tell them it yourself. No, no, no. He doesn't say, look, you keep this book to yourself. You church leaders, you study it and then sort of pull it out every now and then and just whoop the people into shape. He says to the saints who are in Christ Jesus, to the believers in Christ Jesus, Are teachers important? Yes. I'm standing in front of you as one. In Ephesians chapter 4, this very book, he tells you that God has appointed teachers in his church to help his people understand his word, to be equipped to serve God. Now, we need others to help us along the way. I love that Peter in one of his letters says about the Apostle Paul, some of the things Paul says are hard to understand. That's Peter about Paul. That's true. But listen, what we're saying here is this. Paul writes directly to all the people because he wants all of us to know what the Bible says He wants all of us to believe what the Bible says. And I want to say to you as a pastor, I want you to know and believe what the Bible says, not because I say it or just because your parents said it or just because some professor you respect says it. Though those things may help add weight to your responsibility to believe, but we want you to see ultimately what God says from God's word and that God says it and so that you would know what he says. And you know that he says it and where he says it. This is the point. It's a direct word to each of us. That's actually a very helpful point when you get to something like Ephesians 5 and the controversy about marriage, which we are not diving into tonight. But the the role of a husband and wife in marriage, the Bible's view as expressed by Paul is a source of great controversy in our day. But it's interesting in that text, Paul speaks directly to husbands and he doesn't say, husbands, you go home. And tell your wife what God says she has to do to love you. He doesn't say that at all. Paul just says, husbands, you go home and love your wife. And wives, he says, speaking directly to them, here's how you love your husband. Or even in chapter 6, very strikingly, he speaks directly to children. He doesn't just say parents teach your children, although they ought to. He actually says children... Obey your parents in the Lord. He expects there to be children in worship 
hearing the word, responding to the word spoken directly to them. That's simply my point here. It's a very direct word for each of us. And it's a demanding word. Finally, if, if Paul has authority to speak on God's behalf, to speak words from Jesus about Jesus, then we have a responsibility to receive what he says. To sit under the word and not over it. To let the word sit over us as we sit under it and simply receive and respond. Listen, Paul says, I'm going to tell you about how sweet the gospel is. I'm going to tell you about the unsearchable riches of Christ. I'm going to tell you about God's plan for the universe, which can include you and its blessing. And Paul, Paul is saying, and I'm going to show you how that works itself out at work and at school and in the church and in your home. And, and Paul is saying, listen, it's not up for grabs how that works itself out. We don't sort of make it up as we go along. Well, I like Christianity to look this way. And it's fine if you want it to look that way. That, that's not Paul's point here. Very directly, he speaks to us in, in, just as an outline of the book, chapters 1 to 3, all the good we have in Jesus by God's grace. Chapters 4 to 6, how that shapes us and ought to shape us. That's his message. So, friends, I, I simply just want to say this to you at the outset here of the book of Ephesians. We aim to be however much we all fail at it daily. We aim to be a church that listens to the word, receives it like a child welcoming the words of a loving father, like a woman delighting in the loving words of her husband. That's who we aim to be. It's a sure word from Jesus about Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. We have also a new identity in Jesus. Notice the language here. He writes to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul wants Christians to know who they are. Our family has thoroughly enjoyed the Harry Potter series. In the first book, Harry's taken around by this adoptive family. They don't really like him, but they're trying to protect him from something. He doesn't really know what that is. And they try to get him as far away from danger as possible. And so they end up out on a rock in the ocean. And a giant of a man, literally a giant, shows up at the door and blasts the door in. And he starts lavishing praise on Harry. I'm so glad to meet you. And Harry's as puzzled as he could be. Why? The secret gets out at this point that that Harry Potter, no surprise to you, is a wizard. Harry says, I'm a what? And Hagrid, the giant, gets angry at that point. You don't even know who you are? What you are? And he looks at the guardians. You haven't even told him what he is? And they start talking about Harry's parents' death and Harry's 
aunt starts saying bad things about Harry's mom. And Harry says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, my parents were killed in a car wreck. And Hagrid goes ballistic. You told him they died in a car wreck? He's furious. Harry doesn't understand why he's so furious. But as the book unfolds, you find out that Harry's mom, giving away the storyline here. You're late if you haven't read it yet. Harry's mom didn't have her life accidentally ripped away from her. She had sacrificed her life out of love for him to save him. And since Harry didn't know that about his mom, he didn't know how much he had been loved and he didn't even know who he was. And my point here is simply this. Paul says, do you know what you are? Who you are? You are saints, he says, in Christ Jesus. Now what is that? He goes on to describe them also as faithful. And there he means believing. They're believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. Don't get weirded out thinking he's talking only to like some super Christian who never messes up. And so they're really faithful, unlike the rest of us who aren't that good at it. That's not what he's talking about by faith. He he means believing in Christ Jesus. But he calls them also saints. Now let me say this. He's clearly speaking very directly to believers in Jesus. And if you are here today, and you're not a believer, I want you to know we're delighted that you're here. We're glad that you're here. And if you're a believer here, I I want you to understand the teaching of the text. Let it nourish you. And if you're not a Christian, let it encourage you. Let it pique your interest in what Paul says about what Christians are. What's a saint? A saint is a holy one. Not perfect people. Not perfect Christians. But one who has been set apart. The Christian is is a person set apart by God. And for God. It means you're His now. You belong to Him for His purpose. For His kingdom. He's not saying, well, you've gotten so really good, we should call you holy. That's not what He's talking about here. He's talking about a change of identity. It's the common, everyday way the Bible speaks of Christians. Every Christian is a saint. Every saint is a Christian. You are as much a saint, Paul would be saying to us, playing basketball as you are at a prayer meeting. You are as much a saint studying economics as you are at Bible study. You are as much a saint changing diapers. Well, some of us might say you're far more than a saint. But Paul would say you're at least that. You are a saint whether you're doing that or you're singing hymns. Because that is what you are. By God's making you that, he's given you a new identity. You're not some rare achiever here, but someone God reached down to and said, you're mine and reserved you for himself. You and I need to find our deepest identity as we define ourselves in that, not in what others say about us, Not in what we find in ourselves or what our performance or achievement says about ourselves. 
but in what God says about us, what God did for us. The world will say to you again and again, you have got to do to be. Prove yourself and you'll have status. Achieve and we will acknowledge you. Do well and we will reward you. We'll think highly of you. We'll give you status. But God says be and you'll do. Not do and you'll be, but be and you'll do. In other words, I give you status, know who you are, and it will change your life. It will make you different. I told this a couple years ago, I checked. So some of you haven't heard this and others of you who are new, of course, haven't. But in, for me, in the movie Salt, giving another way, another plot line to a story. It's this big blockbuster action flick with Angelina Jolie. Don't unreservedly recommend it at all. But a lot of you have seen it. And in it, she plays this secret agent who's captured by, I think it's the North Koreans. They torture her. She's probably going to die there. But her husband, who has no idea that she's CIA, he spends his wealth and his energy and his influence to get her released. And with the help of the government, he does, surprisingly. And, And what he doesn't know is that she's actually a double agent. She's been trained to be a deep cover operative since her youth. She's been told who she is and what she's for. And so they expect her, upon her release, to work for them because of her identity. And the movie goes on to see, show all this crazy stuff that she does. And they hold you in suspense, so ruining another story for you. They hold you in this tension because you don't know the backstory, so you're confused about who is she really and what's she really up to. It all looks very bad until there's a flashback in the movie to the scene when she found her release as they walk across the border into safety. She is battered and beaten. Her husband walks her across the border, gets into the back of the van with her, and looks at her and says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you've done, but I love you, and I'm not going anywhere. And it just melts her heart. And she admits she, she had married him as a lie just to further her own agenda as a double agent. She tells him all the ugly truth. She simply used him, and he loves her. And it melts her, and he confirms her in a new identity. She belongs to him in love, and he belongs to her in love. And what she does with the rest of the movie on, when you go back and watch it a second time, makes utter complete sense. Some of us struggled the first time. Uh, No, I got it, but you know how it is. The rest of the movie flows out of what her real identity is. This is, I'm simply saying this. You and I have been identified by God and given an identity in God. We belong to Him. He's made us His own. That will change you as you believe it, embrace it, and learn what that means. And Jesus, it says here, how do we get it? He's the source of this. He's the source of our sainthood. We are included in Him, it says. You are saints in Christ Jesus. You're saints in and believing in Christ Jesus. God isn't waiting, in other words, for you to achieve this status. Jesus achieved it for you. 
so you could be welcomed in him. He set himself apart so you could be set apart in him, by him, for God. And some of you, friends, are killing yourselves because you're defining yourself by your achievement and you're never going to be the best. Some of you are killing yourselves because you're defining yourselves only by the relationships that you have. I'm so-and-so's girlfriend. I'm so-and-so's boyfriend. I'm, I'm only really so-and-so's wife and so-and-so's mom, but I don't really have my own identity. Some of you are killing yourselves because you're defining yourselves by your past events. Things that dominate your past that you can't escape, you think. It's telling you that's what you are. That's all you'll ever be. And you continue to beat yourself up over some failure, some shame, some disgrace, some event in your life. And you've defined yourself by it and you continue to do so. And Paul says, oh, would you, would you hear me? That is not who you are. You belong to God. He brought you to himself, for himself. You are love. So you're not, you're not a sluggard. You're not a pervert. You're not worthless. You're not a whore. That's not who you are anymore, Paul says. You're in Christ. You're a saint. So we have, he says, we have a sure word from God. We have a new identity in Jesus. And very briefly, thirdly, we can grow in our experience of God's blessings here. Look at, look at verse 2. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I was meeting JBU students at the Info Fair last week. Somebody asked me a, a series of great questions One of the questions was, what's your goal from the pulpit? I was there with Jay and Tim, and afterwards I told them how I answered that. I I just rambled on for a little while. I mean, I started with, well, my goal is to be faithful to God's word, and um, I want to make the author's intention in the text my intention in the pulpit. Uh, I I, I rambled on some more. Well, I really believe in... In, uh, you know, reading and then explaining and then applying the passage, I try to go verse by verse and paragraph by paragraph and book by book. And I mean, by the end of it, like my eyes were glazing over with this explanation of what it, what, what's my goal? What's my aim here? It could have been all very more, much more succinct, right? I mean, there is a lot that could be said, but it could also be summarized very quickly. That's Paul here in verse 2. His great aim, as in all his letters, as in all the desire of his heart, is that people would know the grace and the, the peace, shalom, wholeness of life that comes from God the Father in Jesus Christ. It's just a summary blessing on the people to sum up all that he talks about in the rest of the book. What is grace? It's unmerited favor in the face of demerit. It's not just undeserved favor. 
It's undeserved favor to those who have done everything to scorn it and forfeit it. And it comes to us in Jesus Christ by God's mercy and peace here. It is the the root idea in, in the whole Old Testament here. It's more than just our word for I've got a peaceful, easy feeling. It's it's really shalom. It's wholeness of life, health in the soul, and in relationships. Listen, I want to say this to you. All other religions, as I understand any of them, teach you either that there's nothing wrong with you, and you just need to be enlightened, gather some more information, and go do it. Or, there is something wrong with you, And here's what you need to do to fix yourself, to get right with the deity, whatever that means. Here's what you do, and it's Christianity, friends, in contrast to that, that teaches you. There is something wrong with you, and you can't fix you, but God sent His Son to be your Savior. Because He loved you, and you keep on needing this Savior You and I never go beyond our need for Jesus. We do go deeper into it. When I say here, Paul says, grace and peace to you. Okay, some of you might say to me, well, I mean, once once you've got grace, don't you kind of always have it? And Paul says in Romans, we have a standing in grace. We're we're sort of in the the paint on the basketball court, right? There's a paint area near the goal. And if you're standing in it, you're in the sphere of the paint. Paul says that in Romans. You're in the sphere of grace. You stand in grace, right? You're in it. You have it. It's yours. But, but Paul, wanting them to know in, their, in the depths of their heart the experience of grace, to understand that grace, to love that grace and be changed by that grace. That's what he's talking about, a, a greater taste of it. So we'll never go beyond Jesus here, friends, but Lord willing, by God's grace, we'll go deeper into the blessings that are found only in Jesus because God isn't done with any of his people yet, not even saints. So he prays for them, that God would give them what only God can give them. And where do we grow in grace and peace and wholeness? How do we get it? It's It's taught in this sure word. It tells us of our new identity. And it is found as a gift from the Father and the Son. He gives it to us. Let's ask for it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow before you. We thank you that you did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all that those who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I pray you teach our souls to cling to Jesus, to know more and more of the depths of his love and the heights of his riches. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.